very mountains in the desert and in the Holy Land on which God chose to reveal himself to Israel and through them to the world emphasize that God, the transcendent king, makes his royalty manifest through what the Talmud called his humility, through his caring for us. And it is in part precisely because of that that we acclaim God as king. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 203, The Almighty Monarch and Us. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. A famous anecdote that I saw somewhere describes the British statesman William Gladstone saying to his chief rival, Benjamin Disraeli, something like, I've been told that you are able to tell a joke on any subject. I therefore challenge you to say a joke about Her Majesty Queen Victoria. To this, Disraeli reportedly replied something like, Yes, I can tell a joke about any subject, but Her Majesty is not a subject. The joke is, I think, inspired perhaps by a famous line in Shakespeare's Richard II where the Plantagenet monarch Richard, on the brink of being deposed, muses how suddenly his claim to kingship seems like a charade. He says, Throw away respect, tradition, form, and ceremonious duty, for you have but mistook me all this while. I live with bread like you, feel want, taste grief, need friends. Subjected thus, how can you say to me, I am a king? Here in this passage, the purposeful pun is the phrase, Subjected thus. Richard's implication here is that in seeking friendship and caring for those beyond himself, he has become less kingly. In feeling a desire to subject himself to the company of others, he therefore makes himself a subject and no longer a king. But is this true? Does caring about others detract from one's royal status? Or is Richard missing the mark? Could it be that the opposite actually is the case? That when we open ourselves to others in the right way, when we show compassion for others, then we illustrate true royalty. The Bible emphasizes that while the true king of kings, of course, does not need bread, he does care quite profoundly about those that are so much lesser than himself, and moreover, that this divine concern goes hand in hand with his monarchical might. This in turn teaches us that there is more to monarchy than meets the eye, and that if one wishes to understand true royalty, one must comprehend the royal nature of the king of kings. Psalm 24 is one which for many Jews takes liturgical center stage on Rosh Hashanah because it emphasizes the kingship of God. It begins with David Mizmor from David a Psalm and then continues by describing how God's creation of the world ensures that the title of king over all the earth is his and his alone. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the mountain of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory, Selah. This is the psalm and we must parse and analyze it carefully. On the one hand, we are informed that the Lord is the creator of the world and his might is monarchically manifested over all the earth. Similarly, Psalm 29. Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory of God thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. 
The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. In both these psalms, the transcendent royalty of God is emphasized. And yet, and yet, how are we to honor this king who is welcome in his court? Strikingly, our original psalm has already given us the answer. Who shall ascend unto the mountain of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Clean hands and pure heart. This means that there can be no one in the court of the Creator King who has oppressed others, because it is the oppressed about whom God the King cares profoundly. And therefore, only those with compassion, honesty, and integrity are welcome in the mountain of God, considered worthy members of the court of the Almighty Monarch. Thus, what might seem paradoxical for some is for Judaism, not paradoxical at all. The very King of Kings who overwhelms all, whose greatness surpasses all, who transcends all, cares profoundly for us and seeks to be close to us. The Talmud put it this way, In the very same place where you find the greatness of the Holy One, blessed be He, there you will find His humility by which the rabbis mean the fact that God, monarch of all the earth, is transcendent and simultaneously engaged in our lives. For the Talmud, this can be seen first and foremost in the words of the Torah, Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is God supreme, supreme Lord, a great God, mighty and awe-inspiring, which regardeth not personal favors nor taketh bribes. This verse is immediately followed by another. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger, in giving him food and raiment. The Supreme Lord of all the universe loves the fatherless, the stranger, and the widow. And this means that we must imitate the Almighty. Thus the next verse continues, Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Thus the Bible joins together two themes, without in any way indicating even a touch of tension between them. God's transcendence on the one hand, and his closeness and compassion on the other. The Talmud further cites Psalm 68 to prove this point. First we are informed, Sing unto God, sing praises to his name, extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name. We extol the Almighty, in other words, for he is so far above us, he rides the very heavens. But right after that, we hear immediately about God manifesting mercy, compassion, and love. The next verse reads, A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. Transcendent reigning from on high is joined with closeness. It is with this in mind that we can return to a section of our original psalm. Who shall ascend into the mountain of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. What is this mountain of God to which the psalm refers? This could be the Temple Mount, but the rabbis also see a reference to Sinai, on which walked Moses, welcomed into God's court because of his righteousness. Sinai and Mount Moriah. For scripture, these are the two most important mountains in Jewish history. The two that can claim to truly be mountains of God. Now, on the one hand, the very fact that they are mountains and that the Almighty revealed himself atop them is intended to reflect the transcendence and monarchical might of God. On the other hand, one does not need to be an expert in geography or a passionate mountaineer to know that Sinai and Mount Moriah are not the most impressive specimens of mountains. Mark Twain, in his Innocence Abroad, describing his visit to the Holy Land, complained to his readers that the scenery in America, both water and mountain, was, in his opinion, ever so much more impressive than what he found in the land of Israel. Quote, 
The celebrated Sea of Galilee is not so large a sea as Lake Tahoe by a good deal. It is just about two-thirds as large. And when we come to speak of beauty, this sea is no more to be compared to Tahoe than a meridian of longitude is to a rainbow. The dim waters of this pool cannot suggest the limpid brilliancy of Tahoe. These low-shaven yellow hillocks of rock and sand so devoid of perspective cannot suggest the grand peaks that compass Tahoe like a wall and whose ribbed and chasmed fronts are clad with stately pines that seem to grow small and smaller as they climb till one might fancy them reduced to weeds and shrubs far upward where they join the everlasting snows, end quote. So Twain cynically sniped, noting not only that Lake Tahoe was larger than the Sea of Galilee, but also that the mountains surrounding Tahoe were astonishing, unlike anything he saw in the Holy Land. But the truth is that the rabbis made a virtue out of Sinai's smallness. And we can therefore suggest that the very mountains in the desert and in the Holy Land on which God chose to reveal himself to Israel and through them to the world emphasize that God, the transcendent king, makes his royalty manifest through what the Talmud called his humility, through his caring for us. And it is in part precisely because of that that we acclaim God as king. Thus, in so many synagogues on the first evening of Rosh Hashanah, many Jews prepare to coronate God as they do annually in the days of awe. And they recite Psalm 24 and ponder thereby whether we are worthy of serving in the court of a king who is both transcendent and close. They read, Who shall ascend into the mountain of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. In the end, there was one subject which Benjamin Disraeli thought was no laughing matter, and that is the mountain of God. In his novel Tancred, Disraeli describes the son of a duke who, rather than claiming his elite role in British society, engages in a religious pilgrimage that ultimately leads him to Mount Sinai. Arriving there, he wonders whether, as an Englishman from the other side of the world, he truly belongs. But then, standing at that site where the transcendent God descended to dwell amongst his people, he realizes that it was there that God made known to the world the principles of justice and morality and compassion, and that therefore all mankind is bound to that seemingly small site that it is actually one of the most important places on earth. Disraeli writes, Was he then a stranger there? Uncalled, unexpected, intrusive, unwelcome? Was it a morbid curiosity or the proverbial restlessness of a satiated aristocrat that had drawn him to these wilds? What wilds? Had he no connection with them? Had he not from his infancy repeated in the congregation of his people the laws which from the awful summit of these surrounding mountains the father of all had himself delivered for the government of mankind? At Sinai, we discovered the transcendence of the King Creator, but also his fatherhood, his humility, and his love. And from the mountain of God, and from Psalms celebrating it, we learn that, be we son of a duke or not, being worthy of this king's court is the most important and impressive privilege of all. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.